You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. The last few weeks, we've been working through the book of Psalms through the summer here. We've seen God's purpose for the hope of the world expanding out from Israel all the way to the nations. So seeds that were sown in the book of Genesis very early on path through the Bible all the way to Revelation, where we see the salvation is not just for God's covenant people, Israel of the Old Testament, but the salvation is for every tribe, language, people, and nation. As Pastor Jonathan summarized for us last week in a kind of two-part series, Psalm 76 describes a blessing of all nations. Then Psalm 68 shows that this blessing and salvation will come from a single king. Then comes Psalm 69. If read in succession, we would see and notice an abrupt turn here that happens in Psalm 69. And at first glance, it would be easy to say that we've just moved on to something else here in the Psalms. It's it's that abrupt. However, as we will see, we are far from leaving the topic of salvation of the nations here in Psalms. So Psalm 67 answers the question, who will be blessed by God? The nations. Psalm 68 answers, how will they be blessed? Through a conquering king. And Psalm 69 in turn will answer, how does this king conquer? Psalm 69 is written for a time of of suffering and deep distress. There's a lot going on in this psalm. It's an individual lament, which includes individual and corporate aspects. It includes prayer for the righteous, curses for the wicked. They both find their fulfillment in the New Testament. And with all that's going on in this psalm, my hope is that we'd at least understand three things this morning. So this is kind of how we're going to bracket it this morning here. We're going to do first, what's the problem? What's David's problem here? Second, what's David's prayer And last, what is the promise we see? So I want to pray one more time before we dive in here. Uh, Father, would you help us now? Um, Would you meet us um, personally where we are at, Lord? We need your words for our souls, um, for the trouble, for the sorrow, for the confusion in our souls. And so would you now, with your word, Um, Meet us, Lord. Help us understand your love and your goodness um, down where we need it the most. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, three things this morning. The problem, the prayer, the promise. David here has been going through an extended season of distress. He's at the breaking point. He's just holding on, and he's pleading to the Lord for help. We see several vivid descriptions here in the first few verses of this psalm, and David just dives right in. A few things he says. He says, the waters are rising up to my neck. They're getting, they're getting up here. And then he says, my feet are sinking into the muck. I have no foothold. So not only are the waters coming up, he's trying to push up on something, and his feet are just getting further stuck. They're just sinking deeper down. On top of that, he's been here for a while. He says, I'm weary from crying out for help. My throat is dry and hoarse from my pleas. And last, my eyes grow dim as I wait for the Lord. So you got this vivid description of the water's coming up, my feet are going down, I've been crying out, my voice is tired, my eyes are even weary, maybe looking for help over the horizon, and my eyes are fading. I don't see help coming from the Lord. 
Whether you've ever literally been in a situation like this or not, we all, we all feel it. We all intuitively can get to that spot in one way or another. There's an utter helplessness we hear here. David's been in distress, like I said, for a while. He's reached a critical stage. And not only is he stuck, but the waters keep moving up. They aren't just at his ankles. They aren't at his knees or his waist. He says they're up to his neck now. He pleads and says, if the waters go any higher, I'll no longer have a voice to plead. It's desperate. I'm on my last leg. I'm on my last breath here. I'll be taken by the waters soon and no longer have the ability to cry. So David's nearing this last breath, this last moment. It feels like the 11th hour for him. And he cries out, save me, oh God. Again, we feel that distress, a little bit of panic, the volatility of it and his predicament. In that, let's dig a little bit more in here that what might be causing David's distress here. And so we're going to spend a lot of time here on the, on the, the problem in this text. And so, so David's at this desperate point. He's crying out for help. What, what is the cause of his distress here? Two things to note in verses 4 through 12 here. Uh, the first one is who and then the why. The who. David's enemies are the cause here. Verse 4 says, More than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Verse 8, I become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. So David's enemies, in a large part of the cause here, aren't just out there in this distant land. They're near to him. He's a stranger to his own brothers, a stranger to his own family, his own nation. His enemies are mighty, and they are many. And those who are near him, at minimum, stand far off. And as we're going to see, they do probably more than that. Um, they've, they've abandoned him in his distress here. And so David's not only on his last breath here, but he's, he's alone. All those around him have left him as his enemies attack. In addition to that, David's suffering here is not a private matter. It's not just that everybody's left and he's on his own um, suffering here in the sight of, of no one. Verse 11 and verse 12 gives this description. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those that sit at the gate, and the drunkard makes songs about me. So from the officials at the gate to the drunkards in the alley, David's situation is known. It's talked about. It's mocked at points. Much like we see in Psalm 22, it says this, David writing here as well says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So David hears the talk of the town. He's disgusted in the shadows. Even drunkards have made up jingles about him because of his distress and mock him in that. From the highest to the lowest, David is the example and not a good example here in his distress. So he's alone in it, but it's not unknown. He's the talk and show of the town here. And as David humbles himself and laments and seeks for God, they develop these sayings about him. His reproach came from the very occasion of him humbling himself. He said, when I humbled myself, it became my approach. 
They saw blood here and poured it on a little bit more. David humbles himself, and they just press more and more at him. If you can think of any kind of sporting event and just uh, battles where there's enemies, quote-unquote, there's a lot of examples of this. You, You see, when the competition gets tight and it gets tough, that it's just that added little thing. So you get tackled in football, and then it's that little push on the face mask as you get up. Or in basketball, it's that little step over after someone dunks on you. And so there's this added, not only is there injury here, but this added pressing insult, the extra push at the end, the extra word, the extra look in David's situation here. And so it's, it's bleak. The distress is a real distress. He's desperate. He's alone. Those that are around him actually pour it on. Um, and add that little extra, and it's from David's enemies. David's enemies are the ones that are doing this. So that's the who, but why? I mean, enemies are just going to do things that enemies do, but what, was, what is the why here that David states? And the, the why here is it says his distress is caused by his enemies because of his zeal for God, because of his love for God. So some commentaries, if you've read um, Psalm 69 and looked through it, um, will kind of have this this dual purpose here. It'll say something like, David's suffering here because of his sin, but his enemies are just adding a little bit more on. I think that misses what David's saying here. I think the main thrust of this psalm is on David's suffering for the zeal of God's house and for God's glory. David surely is sinful, But here it is not the cause of his suffering. Or at a minimum, David's sin is not the focus in this psalm. And so I want to list briefly here seven reasons why I think that to be the case and then why why it matters for us this morning. So seven reasons why I think what's in focus is persecution and suffering not caused by David's sin in this psalm, although he is a sinner. Uh, Verse 4, there are three statements here of David's innocence. He says, his enemies hate him without cause. They attack him with lies. And then he rhetorically asked, what I did not steal, must I now restore? So plainly, David is saying, these accusations just are not true. They're false. They're speaking lies. They're hating me without reason. Do I have to give back something that I didn't even take? So that's the description David gives in here in verse 4. Verse 5 David mentions his folly and his wrongs all being known to God. I think the way that this verse actually functions here is it's giving a defense in light of verse 4. He's saying, I'm innocent, they hate me without cause, they attack me with lies, I haven't stolen, yet they want me to restore it. And he says, look God, you know me all the way down. This is not what I've done. This is unjust. I'm innocent in this matter. And so verse 5 actually functions, I think, as a, as a defense in light of what Paul or what David has said here in verse 4. I think also David draws some strength from this. God knows him all the way down. Any accusations that they're going to have, any reproaches towards him, he says, God, you, you know it all already. I'm not going to discover something from my enemy that's going to send me down deeper. God, you know me all the way down. You know my sin, you know my folly, and you know my innocence. And so verse 5, David draws strength from that, encountering what is written in verse 4 here. Uh, Third reason, 
In verse 7, David says, It is for God's sake that I have borne reproach. Number 4, verse 9, David says that his purpose, zeal for God's house, is my driving passion. It has consumed me. It's a passion that even flows out into his prayers, his individual prayers, his corporate, corporate prayers, his prayers towards his enemies. That passion flows out. And, it, and he says, D- defend the righteous. Punish the wicked. Stop what is going on. Don't just stand idly by what is going on here, God. And so that passion, that zeal for God is what David says, that's what I'm passionate about here, Lord. I'm passionate about you and your glory and your purposes. So David explicitly states that in this psalm. That's the fourth reason. Fifth reason, David never repents in this psalm, which stands in stark contrast to many other psalms, like Psalm, psalm 51. He does not repent, um, but verse 10, verse 11, it says David weeps. He humbled himself. He fasted. He put on sackcloth, which can be actions of repentance, but also can be actions of, of lament or mourning. And I think that's what David's doing here. He says, the Lord's hand is heavy on me. I'm going to come to him. I'm going to humble myself and come to him. It happens often in scripture because of sin, but not always. I don't think in this situation and a couple other examples to list briefly. When Jacob's sons told him that Joseph had been killed, allegedly killed by a wild animal, he did this very thing. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He came towards the Lord because of this bitter news. In Esther chapter 4, when Mordecai hears of the decree to kill all the Jews, he does the same thing. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he laments, and he cries out bitterly into the streets because of this this bitter providence, this tough news. So in times of mourning, in times of bitter providence, is often attached to actions here like David is doing. Sin is often attached to it too, because we are sinners, and, and a lot of the causes is our own sin, is our own foolishness. But there's times that just the Lord's hand is heavy, and David models humbling himself before the Lord. And so he doesn't repent, but he humbles himself before the Lord. Number six, verse 20, as mentioned earlier, he says, the reproaches have broken his heart. I think which helps us understand his prayer in in six and seven, where he prays for those around him to not be put to shame because of him. You could say, well, duh, David did something foolish. Don't let that put people around me to shame. But also the context that's happened here is he says, the the reproaches have broken my heart, not my sin has broken my heart. And so they're coming at him. They're accusing him. They're pressing against him. They're reproaching him. And David's saying, "It's, it's getting in. It's getting to me. I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling weak. Let not those that follow you, Lord, be confused by these false accusations. Let them not buy into the lies that they hear about me. Let them not see me quit as I wait for you, Lord, or lash out to you. Let them see a good model. Keep them as you keep me. And so he, do, he does pray for those to not be put to shame. And I think it's because he's, he's feeling it here. It, it's getting in. Their approaches, their reproaches are having an effect. He's tired. He's desperate. And so those have broken his heart in verse 20 here. So those are the first six, went through them quick. And then the last one, the last reason is because 
of who speaks this psalm in the New Testament, which is what we'll get to. So seven reasons why I think what's in focus here is unjust suffering in David's life. David's been suffering for a long time in desperation by himself, others pouring it on, a little extra push because of his love for God, because he trusts God, because he pursues God and won't give it up. So why does this matter? Just one reason I want to mention this morning. It's important for us to see that suffering for the sake of God is a common expectation for a follower of Jesus. This isn't just an individual one-off event. David's lament is individual, but it's for the community. Israel is supposed to see and feel similar experiences. Yeah, we've been there. We've been persecuted. We've had armies around us. We've been hated. The psalm is for the people of God, as David is the representative for it. And likewise, we should see ourselves in it. We should see at times that David is a model for how we should respond to times like this and what we should be concerned about. And David said he's concerned about God's glory here. And so this is not, for us, there's not times that it's just, this is a rare one-off thing. But David is, is suffering because of those unjustly around him. And that's a lot of what our life will be in small and in big, big ways. So we will have difficulty in this life. And we should not say, because my life is difficult, the Lord is displeased with me. Those are not the same thing. That's the temptation. Life is hard. And if every time life is hard, you say, the Lord doesn't love me. The Lord's not for me. He's displeased with me. Then we get stuck here. David's saying, a heavy hand on me, but the Lord is still good. He's still for me. I'm still with him. And so our trials aren't always because of our sin. We'll suffer wrongs from one another. And we need to be aware of the internal dialogue we have going on. Whether we explicitly say it, or it's on the forefront or the back front of our mind, we're thinking, is, is he for me? Does he really see it? I assume that he saw it for a couple weeks, but I'm still, I'm still here. Maybe he doesn't see it. And th- those doubts and those wondering and those questions creep in. We need to be aware of that, that dialogue that's happening and, uh, and bring that to the Lord when that's happening and see it and see that suffering and pain is going to be a common thing, whether it's just little sufferings of wrongs against one another or small mocking or ridicule or persecution from the world. Because we love Jesus, those subtle and explicit things will come and we can't tie together. Suffering means displeasure from the Lord. Those are separated out. And a warning on the other side, blessing does not mean his favor inherently. We need to understand the Lord, we need to pursue him with our heart and not have circumstances be the thing that dictates if we feel like he's for us or he's against us um, and have that be our only litmus test. David's saying, his hand is heavy against me, my enemies are attacking me, yet the Lord is still good to me even as I cry out for help here. So David vocalizes what Israel feels at times, what we ought to feel at times. That should be our expectation that life is not easy. It is challenging, and the Lord is still for us in those moments. New Testament says those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, especially when circumstances are difficult. That's the time you pile on when someone's down. Not the Lord's for me and everything's going great, but the Lord's for me, and it doesn't look that way at all. That's when we need to know he's for us. That's when people will pile on. So the world will have trouble 
But with God, we have grace and peace. In the world, we'll get less than we deserve. But with God, know that we get much, much more than we deserve. So David humbles himself here under God and becomes another occasion for reproach. And like I said, it, it, it's starting to find its way in. It's like he's in a boxing match, kind of in ring in round nine, maybe round 10 if there's 12, and he's been doing well for a while, but some of those punches are starting to land. Some of those extra pushes are starting to get at him. Some of the mocking, the jeering is starting to get in, and he feels desperate for the Lord to step in and help. And so we see here a desperation really of David's soul. We got physical descriptions here. What David's talking about is his heart and his soul. He wants to stay near to God. These enemies aren't attacking him in a physical sense that he's on the run, though that has been the case for David before. But he's saying, Lord, there's a distress here of my soul. And it leads David to pray. So we spent a lot of time on what, what the problem is, what specifically is going on here, what's led David to such desperation. And now let's look at his prayer. The whole thing kind of is a prayer, but starting in verse 13, it stands in stark contrast with verse 12. So remember, David has become the talk of the town here. So people are talking about him, talking around him, yet David says, I'm going to go talk to God. Those are where my words are going to go. And the amazing thing is, despite this description we just walked through, his prayer is actually on the path towards patience and trust of God. See, in verse 13 here, he says, at an acceptable time. Well, I thought the time was now, David. Feels like that. Save me, O God. The water's up to my neck. He says, at an acceptable time, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me with your saving faithfulness. And so we see David says, your timing with your character and your salvation. So David, even in this moment, is moving towards patience, moving towards trust. He says, Lord, in your timing, I know you will do it. Based on your character, I know who you are. I know that you have steadfast love. I know that you are faithful. I know that you see. Answer me with your saving faithfulness. And so we see a, a confident prayer of patience here that David's moving towards in this, right in the, the middle of the psalm here. So David prays, for your, your time in God, based on your character, bring your salvation to me. So David's eyes are growing whim, dim of waiting, and he says, I'll wait a little longer. But in this waiting, it doesn't prevent him from continuing to cry out. He blasts this psalm with a bunch of other requests right after that. He says, deliver me, answer me, hide not your face from me, ransom me, draw near to my soul, let not the flood overtake me or the pit close around me. And so again, we see David explicitly in distress of his soul here. He says, Lord, I need help. In your, in your timing, help me now. Deliver me once you're ready. But Lord, deliver me, answer me, hide not your face, show your pleasure to me. Draw near when I need you the most here. And we also see in David's prayer here that he doesn't just pray individually as if he, he is the only cause, as if we talked about earlier. He, he prays for those around us. He doesn't want those that pursue God to be put to shame, and so he has concern about others around. He's got concern about the enemies. It's not just a defense of himself, but it's a defense of God's people in God's name. 
And we see David pray a lot of things towards the wicked here that show up often in his psalms. Um, we see him pray curses. So I want to speak a, a little bit to what David might be doing there. So David prays against the wicked. One way maybe to summarize it all is he prays largely for poetic justice. He prays, let them receive what they are doing, what they have done. And so we see this twist um, and kind of poetic language here several times through the psalm. To list a few, he says, they gave me poison for food. Let their table before them become a snare. My eyes are dim in my faithfulness. May their eyes be darkened in their wickedness. Let those who give no comfort have no comfort themselves. Those who deserted me, let their camp become a desolation. Those who pile on reproach, may you pile on judgment. Those who yield not in persecution of the righteous, yield not in your punishment of them. If they will not leave their table, David says, let it be a snare. Defend the cause of righteousness. Glorify your name. So David here is wrestling through prayer. He knows he's desperate. He knows God's sovereign. He knows he has enemies that are attacking him. He knows that God doesn't overlook sin. He knows that he has a plan and confidence. He knows that God has a salvation. And so he says, answer me with your saving faithfulness. Set me on high with your goodness. So David here is, is, is wrestling through these. One simple way to describe how, what David is doing here in a lot of this, I think he's saying he's taking his circumstance and God's promises and trying to pull these together. And so you see the wrestling here. He starts with, save me, O God. And then he starts getting into it here. He says, the water's up to my neck. Save me. So you start to see language of God's grace, of God's goodness coming in here. He's, he's wrestling through this and pulling these together. I know who you are, God, and I know where I'm sitting right now. Help me reconcile this. Help me pull these together to understand what you're doing here, God. And that's not like a five-minute deal. Um, that's maybe days, that's maybe weeks, that's points that you'll feel like you're going backwards. Like you feel like you, you pulled these together and you're like, I see your goodness in this. I still feel the pain. I see your goodness. And then you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and these feel like they're the farthest apart. And so what he's doing in all his wrestling here is saying, here's who you are, God. Here's your promises. Here's your goodness. Here's what I'm walking through. Help me reconcile these. Help me see these. Help me pull these together. I feel the pain. I see the goodness. Bring these closer together. And so when you don't know where to start or where to pray, starting with words of the Bible is a great place to start. Um, and, and start there. Lord, honestly tell him where you are at and then wrestle and fight to see his promises, his goodness, and to bring those closer together, to pull those closer together, to tighten up that disconnect. And there'll be ups and downs, and it takes time, and you'll feel like you're starting over, but pull those together. He's good to you. He's there for you. He understands the pain, and it's, and it's wrestling. It's not easy. It's not an intellectual thing. It's so in our souls, we can say, God is good to me. Yet shall I praise him, even in this sorrow. It's not just, well, this is there, this is there. Mathematically, I can put it together and move on. It's, it's down deep in our soul. Save me, O God, according to your steadfast faithfulness. There's a deep wrestling here David does and models for us. So last, if David's supposed to pull these together for us, 
It's helpful for us to see what, what is the promise that he's pulling together. He's got some of God's character here. Um, he has the promise that we generally have, that those who seek God will find him, that he will be faithful to us. But specifically, the promise David has is that he will have an heir that will reign forever and usher in a good and everlasting kingdom. A king that would rule with equity and justice, doing God's will. And knowing that, you can also see a little bit how David prays here. When you think about all this prayer about the wicked, well, what does it mean when the king of the universe comes and establishes his reign? Will he sit idly by, or is he going to do something? And so I think part of what David is praying here is things that he prays are true, and they are warnings, but he's also praying that's kind of what a righteous king does. He rescues the helpless. He defends their cause. Defends them against who? Their enemies. And so we see in some of that language of David that he's, he's leaning on, there's a king to come that's going to right the way. And he's praying in light of that as well. He's praying in light of the promises to come, even with harsh words and harsh warnings here. So that's what David has for his promise. And in verse 34, it says, the offspring of God's servants will inherit the land. So there's the promise. That offspring, that king, has come. So for us, 2,000 years plus later, we have a little bit more vantage point than, than David does here. What he saw from a distance, we can see real close up. And there's two wondrous things that happen here when that offspring came, when that king came, when Jesus came. The first one here is that Jesus descended. I wonder if David thought, walking through this valley, that he says, man, tough times for me, but when the Lord, when this son comes that will reign forever, it's going to be good for him. Valleys for me, mountaintops for him. David thinking maybe I'm paving the way through difficulty for this blessed kingdom to come. We even see stuff like that in Psalm 68 that David wrote right before this. He said, God shall rise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. So David might be wondering, I'm going through the valley, Jesus will come and climb the mountains. Yet David didn't just precede Jesus, he foreshadowed his path. David was down in the valley, and Jesus went deeper. Jesus will ascend, but he first descended. The one who will be exalted on high first was brought low and humiliated. So it wasn't better times for him. It was worse times for Jesus. He did the full valley. We, like the New Testament, are to see Jesus here in Psalm 69. Jesus finishes the path of the value deeper, darker, sadder, carrying all of our sin with him on top of it. And the New Testament draws us to see this over and over again in Psalm 69 here. At least seven times the, the New Testament picks this up, two of which are on Jesus's very lips. Here's just a few examples to see him fulfilling the valley here of David. Jesus says that he was, quote, quote Psalm 69, he was hated without cause. As Jesus clears the temple, and stops the sacrificial system, his disciples remember, it says in John, zeal for your house has consumed me. So they see what he's doing and said, zeal for his house has consumed him, picking up Psalm 69. Jesus also was the talk of the town and was mocked by those around him. 
There were proverbs about him. Some said, physician, heal yourself. Others mocked and said, he who saved others cannot save himself as he went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. And they gave him sour wine to drink. And John says, to fulfill what was written. And so Jesus is a king, but he first was a king of the valley before he was a king of the throne. The second twist we see here is the surprising, through the surprising route of the valley, is that he came first for mercy instead of wrath. Jesus came first to bless sinners rather than punish sinners. Salvation for any who love his name. David prays for justice, and Jesus comes and says, let mercy have its day. He came to rescue first. We are in the age of the rescue. We are in the age of the gospel going forth. He came to save, and he came through the valley to save. The curses here aren't canceled, but they are delayed. That day will come, but Jesus said, first the day of mercy, first the day of salvation for you and for the nations. So Jesus right now offers forgiveness and grace. He has carried our sins, and he can relate to our sadness. He can relate to our sorrows. He can relate to our suffering. There's no valley that he hasn't been in that was deeper and longer and darker. And he says, now is the time for mercy. So not only does Jesus save us, but he lets us share in his inheritance. That's the amazing thing. It's one thing for him to save us, and that should stop us right there. But he says, I I will share it with them. I will give it to them. They will sit on my throne. They will dwell in the land. They will take part in my table. And so it's one thing that God saves us, but he shares it with us. It's not just he plucks us out over here and goes about his business, but he says, I'm with them. Actually, they're my people. That's my family. Those are my brothers and sisters. He brings us that close. He will save us, and he keeps us, and he's with us in the valley. So this last point was, what is the promise? If you want to add an extra P on there, you could say, the promise that leads to praise. And so David sees this, and he says, therefore, I will praise the Lord. And when will he praise him? When he's in the valley. So David, as we declare, victory in the midst of valley. Not waiting for the end, but he's saying, I'm in the valley, and I know the Lord's good to me. I will yet praise his name and declare victory in the midst of valley. So there's no valley that Jesus has not not been through. He will keep you. He will walk with you. God did not abandon David. He did not abandon Jesus, and he will not abandon you. We are not home yet, but he will see us through. And because he has given us that promise, we we can praise him. We can praise him now. And that brings us to the table that Jesus has given us, where Jesus reminds us and declares, I'm with them, and they are with me. They have a share in my covenant. They have a share in my inheritance. They have a seat at my table. And so we celebrate this morning, like David, victory in the midst of battle, victory in the midst of the valley. The promise is sure. So we will eat together and lift up the cup of salvation together.
Communion, the bread and the cup, are primarily for the members of City's Church. But if Jesus is your Savior, if he's your King, then we welcome you to eat and drink with us. But if you are not there yet, we ask that you let the elements pass, lest you proclaim something that you do not believe and pass judgment on yourself. But do know that King Jesus stands ready to receive you. There's no sin or struggle that he has not dealt with on the cross, so you can come to him. As the pastors come and prepare the elements, we'll serve the bread first. Bread is gluten-free. His body is true bread. Let us serve you.